Hey, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Welcome to our first all-church worship service here at Fellowship of Faith. It's good to see so many of you. And uh, again, let me just set the trajectory of what's going to be happening here today. We do not have two identical services here at Fellowship of Faith today during this 9 o'clock hour. What we're going to be doing is just an intensive teaching into what it means to have a relationship with Christ and uh, what it means to be plunged into him as he's plunged into us. We're gathering together back today, the whole congregation at 1030 for one giant worship celebration, the whole body together at one time. So I just want to encourage you that after this time is done to come back at 1030 today to worship, celebrate, praise the God on high and join together with the brothers and sisters we never see at 1030, right? Kind of thing. So, uh, so that's what today is about. Let's open in prayer. You're going to need your Bibles today. Heads up on that and then we're going to jump on in. Merciful Father, God in heaven, Lord of life and giver of new life, we come before you is, is one body to praise your name and to ask you to stir and breathe into our hearts, to breathe into this church, to breathe into the people that, that, that come into our doors, to breathe into our family, our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones, our enemies, and those we pass on the street and pass in the halls and pass at work and pass on the road that we don't even know. God, you've called us to be salt and light. May we be worthy of that calling. May we understand deeply what you are calling us to. And may we be bearers of that, witnesses of that, test, testifiers of, of what you have done. May your spirit blow, blow great upon this, 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 uh, this church and the people here gathered within in this community. So God, we pray. Amen. John chapter 3, please. John chapter 3. There is this scene. Jesus is meeting with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a member of what is called the Jewish ruling council. It is the Sanhedrin. It is the, the, the leaders of the Jewish people, the wise of the wise, the devoted of the devoted. And Jesus is unpopular. And so Nicodemus sneaks out in the middle of the night when no one can see and when no one can hear and when no one, when no one will know what is going on. And in John chapter 3, we see Nicodemus meeting with Jesus. And it says, he came to Jesus at night in verse 2 and said, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, in parentheses, even though we can't admit it. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Now Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. How can anyone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. But Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still you do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you be able to believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who has just come from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What I'd like to do today is use that John 3 episode as as a mirror, if you will, to something that I think we deal with on a regular basis. What we're going to be talking about today is just the, the essence and the soul of what it means to have a relationship with Christ. 
And I, I'm really of the opinion that for many of us, we have a vague feeling of what this is or certain assumptions of what it's about. But when hard-pressed to it, can we actually delineate what a relationship with Christ is about? at its heartbeat, what salvation is about, what life in Christ, if you want to use that terminology, is about. And therefore, when it comes to being this testimony, this light, this witness to others that John talks about, are we even in a position that we know how to go about explaining that? Are you with me? Fantastic. So the way this is going to work today is, is we're just going to have a Bible study of sorts. I'm going to take you through a variety of passages, so... Keep these out. Be prepared to do some flipping. I have not done a lot of screen work for you today. Instead, what I encourage you to do is if you have questions, you want to flush something out more. Um, we used to do Bible studies in here all the time. Just shout it out, all right? Raise the hands, and I'll try to get to you appropriately. And, and let's just start digging into what this essential relationship among all relationships comes down to. Make sense? Okay, so I got a question for you this morning. Some of you have probably heard me talk about this before. If so, don't steal the answer for those who need to stew a little bit. But I want to pose a question to you here this morning. And, and I want you to just, you have to choose, okay? I'm going to give you like five seconds processing time, and then you have to choose. And here is the question that we have today. What is more important, okay? What is more important of these two choices? Christ in you or you in Christ? Five, four, three, two, one. Okay? One of the wonderful things about being a Christian is that you can be boldly wrong and the body and God still loves you and forgives you, okay? So I need you to commit to your answer. I need hands held high. Sin boldly, whichever side you happen to fall on. And so here's what I want to ask, okay? And we've got to do it this way because I just, I know you well enough. You know well me well enough by this point. You need to close your eyes because you're going to be looking at what everyone else is doing. I know it, okay? You close your eyes. I will get a hand count and then I will answer back when we're all done, all right? Ready? One, two, three, close your eyes. Of those two choices, who said this one is more important? Christ in me. Raise hands. All right, put them down. Okay, which of you said this one is more important? You in Christ. Raise your hands. All right, thank you. Now, no one knows who the just utter heretics are in the room, so we're all okay, all right? I would guess that it came to be about a 60-40 split, maybe 70-30. 60 to 70% saying what's more important is Christ in me, with 30 to 40% saying me or you in Christ. Do you understand the distinction? Okay, now, we know they're both important. We know they're both biblical. So, so we're going to kind of lay a, level a playing field right here. But my experience with most believers is that what drives a relationship with Christ is the idea of something like this. I need to invite Jesus into my heart. I need to have God in me. I need to have his spirit in me. But it's somehow related to God coming to be in me. Now, that is important. And if you answered that way with the vast majority of Christians in this day and age, you are right. But I'm here to tell you today that the New Testament talks far more and the Old Testament talks far more about you being in God or you being in Christ than Christ being in you. I did a quick statistical study. Now, you can't always reduce the Bible to these kinds of things, but I think it's helpful as just a, an awareness tool here today. If you were to go through the entire New Testament, which I did, and count up every single reference to God dwelling in you, Christ in me, the Spirit in me, whatever that language happens to be in all of its forms, you're coming up with about 30 times. 
okay? If you were to count up the amount of times where there is a reference to you in Christ, you in God, you immersed in the Spirit of God, where it's you in Him, I got bored at 183 around Ephesians. Okay? Think about that. And think about what it means in that relationship to have a relationship with Christ. I'd like to read you a quote from Wilbur Reese here today. And this is what it says. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy three dollars Worth of God, please. Here's an image that, that comes to my mind all the time when, when we talk about Christ coming to be in me. A few of you have heard me talk about this before, but it's worth sharing again. Do you remember about 10, maybe 15 years ago, there was a movie made off of a children's story called The Indian in the Cupboard? You remember this one? And it was about this boy who had these action figures and he wanted his little toy Indian to come to life or something like that. I don't know. I don't care. It was a stupid movie, but whatever. We're going to go with it. And, and, and his little toy Indian, he puts him in this magic box, and the Indian comes to life. And now the boy has this, this plaything. His toy has come to be, his toy has just ratcheted up 10 degrees, right? It has gotten so much better. And he can carry his toy around with him in his pocket and, and have like a living relationship with this toy that he loves so much. But in the relationship of the boy and the toy, who is ultimately the powerful one who's calling the shots and controlling the scene? It's the boy, right? And when I don't want to deal with my little toy Indian, I put him back in his cupboard. I think we have become so accustomed to talking about how necessary it is to have God intimately in our lives that simultaneously, I think a lot of us have become guilty of reducing God to an Indian in the cupboard. That we get to pull our little Jesus out whenever it's good and go, oh, my little Jesus, oh, I love you. It's so much fun being with you. But when we're not wanting to deal with it and get on to the other things of life, he goes safely back in the pocket. And he's in me because I am the center of the universe and God fits into my life. Are you with me? The biblical trajectory of a relationship with Christ is something so different than that. It's not Christ in you, at least if the New Testament writers knew what they were talking about. It is you being the little one, the Indian in the cupboard in Christ. It is you plunged into him. It is you immersed into him. It is you swallowed into him. It is you surrounded by him. Which is more transformational? Taking a drink of water or jumping into an ocean? And this is the difference between these two metaphors going on here today. One is something you do that you partake of and you need it to live. Don't hear me wrong on this. But the other is what God is calling you and me to, is to be plunged into him. Now, the early church, and I include the New Testament writers, had a word for this. You may have seen it. And I'm going to try to give it to you here today. It looks like this. Ready? Tell me if you've seen this word. Now, are we getting letters? Are we getting letters? We are not getting letters. Let me try again. This is why we test our technology. <laughs> there we go. Are we getting more letters? There we go. Oh, okay, this is going to be horrible. I got to go slow. <laughs> I got to fit my E. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> 
And mind you, this is how it appears in most early Greek manuscripts. <laughs> the early church has a word for this. It's called baptize. Now, when you think... I'd like you to paint a mental picture with me, okay? We are not looking for theological truth in this question. What we are looking is for you to be an artist or you to be a movie producer, and you are given this term and you have to construct the scene. Are you with me? This later morning at 1030, we have some people coming forward to be baptized. Now imagine that you're one of their family members, okay? And about two weeks ago, you get this invitation in the mail. And it says something to the degree, I am going to be baptized. Come and see it, okay? In your mind, certain images and scenes start coming to mind about what is going to take place or what this thing is called baptism, right? So let's construct this picture right now. When you imagine that you're coming to a baptism, or at 1030, when I say we're going to have a baptism here, let's paint the picture. What are we going to see? What's going to happen? What's going to take place? What is this? Just start shouting stuff out. Okay, there's going to be water. How much water is there going to be? Okay, like a big jug of water, right? Like a big like tub of water, a big bowl of water. What are we going to do with the water? Am I going to wash my hands in it? Am I going to drink it? Are we going to have a water balloon fight? What's going to happen? What's that? Okay, I'm going to pour it over whose head? Over your head or over like just randomly like throw it at people? Whose head's getting this? Okay, so what you don't see, there's going to be some like pouring going on ahead. Now, now, do you expect to see someone grab someone by the hair and like shove their face into it for 45 seconds until they start like doing this? Is that going to happen? Okay, probably not. So what's going to happen? Well, it depends on their age, right? Let's say they're a grown adult, right? Well, let's say they're a baby. What's going to happen if they're a baby? Okay, they're going to cry, they're going to scream, and let's say they're two years old, they're going to kick, and they're going to fight, and they're going to spit, which really isn't that much different than the average 20 or 30-year-old coming to be baptized, right? And this is kind of the scene that's being constructed. Now, what else is going to happen? What else is going to surround this? Give me other details. We've got we to gotta make the movie. There's going to be family, and what's the family going to do? They're going to be doe-eyed. They're going to cry. Isn't this special? But which family members mind you? The parents and the grandparents. What is the rest of the family doing? Laughing, bored, sleeping, drawing. Dear God, get this over with. Any of those permutations is going to fit, right? And what's the rest of the congregation going to be doing? Isn't this nice? Oh. And, but, but the rest are going to be, oh. Some are going to be, oh, this is so cute. The rest are going to be, oh, we're going 10 minutes later, right? I mean, it's going to be one of these two options. Now, now, what else is going to be happening? Words are going to be said probably, right? Okay, give me the magic phrase. What is the magic phrase that's going to be? I mean, just, is the kid going to come up and you just go like this? Yeah, you can say something like, I baptize you. Maybe the name's in there for really being avant-garde, right? I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we might pray over them. We might, you know, get a photo op kind of moment. And, and there might be some cheering. And, and this is kind of what we expect. Perhaps the baby's wearing a white dress, even if it is a boy. Um, you know, there's other trappings that kind of fit into this. But am I correct that when you hear the word baptism, this is roughly the scene that comes to mind? Okay, I know there's variation. Maybe some of you see a dunk tank. Maybe some of you see a river or a lake. Maybe some of you, it's, it's couched a little bit differently, but this is baptism, right? May I submit to you today that when the New Testament writers pen this word in your New Testaments, this is one of the last things on their mind, this scene that I've just shared with you today and that we've built. Do you know what transliteration is? Have you ever heard this word? You're going to get some grammatical insight today. And whenever you have to move meaning 
from one language to another. There's two ways of doing it. One is called translation. The other is called transliteration. Do you hear the difference? What does it mean? Now, this isn't just biblical studies. I mean, you're going from Spanish to English, German to Russian. It doesn't matter, all right? Translation is to take the meaning in this language and bring that meaning into that language. Despite what words you use, despite how they sound, or anything like that, right? So, I mean, th this is how most language works. I mean, there's a thousand examples on this. Let's just do a... I don't know. Let's, let's come up with this. Let's say I come into, the, into English and I have the English word horse, okay? And, and I've got a Greek standing in front of me and, and I want to talk about a horse with Greek. Okay, I can't go up to him and say horse, can I? Because they don't know what horse means. So I have to translate it into Greek and in Greek it would be hippos, okay? Hippos. Now, am I talking about a hippo? No, because the sound of the word is irrelevant. What's meaningful is what your word means in your language coming into what our word means in our language, right? That is translation. Are you with me? Transliteration is when you take the sound of one word in one language and you don't translate it. Because maybe it's too chock full of meaning in its own right that to try to translate it, it misses some of it. Or, or something like that. So what you do is you just take the sound of the word, you make it work in your own alphabet, and you let it fly. So we come into the Greek New Testament, and we come across this word, and it's pronounced baptizo. Okay? Baptizo in Greek. What does that sound like to you? Baptize, right? That's where we get our English word baptize. Translation or transliteration? Transliteration. Whenever your English Bibles come across this word baptize, they don't translate it. They don't actually tell you what it means. Which means you and I often run to the scenes that we associate with the word and our culture and language. But the danger is that what the New Testament writers meant can be missed by what we have come to appropriate it within our own language. Are you with me? Now, I'd like you to turn to a couple of passages here today. The first is Matthew chapter 3. Let's go to verse 11. Matthew 3.11. This is John the baptizer. So what's this guy about, right? Here we've got the very word in his name. And at 3.11, he says this. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to, ca to, to carry. And who's he talking about here? Jesus, right? So everyone's looking at John going, John, you are something, all that and more. They're even going, John, are you the one? And he goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. No, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm here to prepare the way, not be the way. I baptize you with water. But the one that you're looking for is coming after me. I'm just here to point the way. I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes and carry them. And he will baptize you. And this gets weird, all right? In 3.11, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, we've got a problem. Because if our conceptual framework of baptism is a baby coming in a white dress for a photo op moment and pouring water on their head, it works for John the Baptist, but what do we do with Jesus? Because I guarantee you, if we were bringing the baby in in the white dress for the photo op moment and we started heaping burning coals on their head, DCFS is getting in the mix. Right? So something has to be intended or... I mean, when is the last time any one of us have been baptized with fire? Right? It sounds really good, doesn't it? So my question to you today is what does this word actually mean? And by understanding what this word means, how do we better understand what it means to have a relationship 
with Christ. Okay? I want to go to two more passages. The next one I'd like you to hit is Mark 10, verse 38. Mark 10, 38. This is a, a really interesting story. If you're looking at a subheader, it says the request of James and John. Let me set it up. Jesus has just finished teaching his disciples that in the kingdom of heaven, the humble will be exalted and the exalted will be brought low, that, that Jesus has come not to serve, or not to be served, but to serve, and, and that, that the mark of discipleship is being a servant, and, and, and all this kind of stuff, okay? So James and John, just being very astute fellows, I mean, they're, they're wrapping their minds around this, and they come to Jesus with a request, and this is their request. They go, Jesus, we want to ask you something. Mind you, no one else is around, okay? They come on their own. Hey, Jesus, come here. I want to ask you something. Okay, what is it? Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, we want you to do something for us. We want one of you, we want one of us to sit at your right hand and the other of us to sit at your left hand. So you can tell that the disciples are really getting it here, right? And you want to hear what's worse? You go to the, like, the, the version in Luke where it's like even gets lamer because this is what they do. They, they, don't, they, don't even have, they don't even have the guts to do it themselves. They get their mom to do it. I am not making this up. Look this up in Luke. They send their mom to ask if Jesus will make their two, her two sons great in the kingdom of heaven. I'm sorry, you can never be great in any organization if your mom has to do the asking. Okay? Leadership rules to live by. Now look at what Jesus says to them. He goes... You don't know what you're asking him at verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Well, if baptism means going down to the creek, having someone pouring water over your head and praying over you, absolutely. We saw you do it with John. Yeah, I could do that. Seems to be missing something doesn't it? What is Jesus talking about? Can you be baptized with the baptism I am about to be baptized with? To which we're running to the cross, right? And so you get this idea of Jesus saying, you don't know what you're asking. When I am sitting on my throne, do you really want to sit at my right and at my left? Is that what you want, James and John? Because I can arrange that for you. Is that really what you want? Because where is Jesus glorified? Where is his throne present? Where is he seen in all his glory. It's not on the golden throne in the sky. It's right here. At least if Mark knows what he's talking about. But why does Jesus use the term baptize? If he's going to go metaphorical on him, why does he go there? Okay, one more to build the case. Flip with me to Luke chapter 11, verse 38. Luke 11, 38. And it says this at verse 37. Now when Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Well, that makes it utterly clear, doesn't it? I mean, you see baptism all over the place, right? Here's how it reads in Greek. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first baptizo before the meal. Jesus didn't wash his hands. And Luke uses the word baptize to describe this activity. All right? In the soapy water kind of thing. So let's go back. Baptize. What is it? I asked you to make an interpretive leap earlier that when the New Testament writers talk about this thing called baptism, they are not predominantly or fundamentally referring to this Christian rite or act, but something behind it. And so far we've begun to see how this term gets used in all different kinds of ways through the Bible. Sometimes it's used to like this pouring out of Jesus of the Holy Spirit in a fire, be that metaphorically or literally Subject for another time. 
We, we, we've seen that Jesus uses it metaphorically uh, to refer to like the experience of the cross he was about to get. And, and, and we see that here in just kind of an everyday kind of way, it's just kind of a word that they use to kind of like wash your hands. So what is it? All of these fancy theological words that we use in the church today were once upon a time ordinary, everyday, regular words that were just used as part of life, not in a religious or Jewish or Christian setting. And this word baptize that you see simply means this, not in transliteration, but in translation. Immerse. Immerse. So it looks like this. Just so you hear me right. All right? Yes, erase all strokes. I am M M E R S and like all Greek manuscripts E. Alright? <laughs> to immerse. What does it mean to immerse something? Well, it's basically to take something and plunge it in to something else. And you can be baptized into anything that you can be immersed into. Can you be immersed into water? Yeah, and we saw John doing it, right? Can you be immersed into the Holy Spirit? Can you be immersed into fire? Can you be immersed into an event or an experience like crucifixion or a trip to Six Flags? Yeah, you can. Can you immerse your hands to get them clean? Yeah, anything that you can be immersed into is baptism from a New Testament definition. You ever have those moments? Uh, my daughter Reagan and I were driving to church today, and you ever have those moments where you see like kind of stormy clouds on the horizon, but the sun is breaking through them, and you can actually see the light beams coming down, and you kind of get this sense, at least I do, do you? Where you're like, I would love so much to go just like stand in that light beam because it feels like the light is actually heavy. Like it would surround, like, like it would, almost like it would cling to you and be of a different substance than the ordinary light in this room that we really can't see. You know what I mean? It's kind of like basking. Do you ever see like a cat when the sunbeam's coming in through the window and it's creating this like bright shaft of light and, and they're just like rolling in it and basking in it and it's warm and, it's, and they're like kind of immersed in this light. You know the reason cats do that, by the way? Because they're such evil spawns of hell, it's the only time they get to come into the light, you know, but that, that's another matter for another time. There's like three people with legitimately angry looks on their face right now. It's fantastic. It... Have you ever done like one of those cave tours? And what they do, or like a haunted house, they take you to the deepest, darkest part of the cave. You're like, I don't know. They tell you you're a thousand feet underground. You're probably like two feet, but whatever, it works. And uh, all the lights go off, and there's like a darkness. And the darkness doesn't feel just like darkness. It feels thick, and it feels surrounding, and it feels clinging. And for those of you who get claustrophobic, you know what I mean when it feels like it starts to press in. On around, like you are plunged and immersed into darkness. That's baptism. You can be baptized into fog. You can be baptized into water. You can be baptized into jello. You can be baptized into mud. You can be baptized into, I don't know, anything you can come up with. If you can be immersed into it, that's baptism. And then Jesus says something like this He says, Go and make disciples of all nations. Because what I want is not saved people, I want disciples and immerse them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything I've commanded you and surely I'll be with you to the end of the age. What is Jesus actually saying there? Is Jesus telling us that I want you to make disciples and the way you need to make disciples is by pouring some water over their head at the ceremony then rock on? Or is it something so much more than that? Do you see the conceptual difference that starts to get set up when you change the word from baptism to immerse? 
Don't baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It makes it sound like a rite. Immerse them. Plunge them. Surround them in me and my dad and the Spirit who I send on my behalf. It's fascinating to me that even when we talk about the Holy Spirit, which is probably the most visible manifestation of, of God coming in us, do you understand that far more in the New Testament, and test me on this, the Holy Spirit comes upon people rather than in people. That it's much more frequent for people to be immersed in the Spirit plunged in the spirit than for the spirit to kind of do like a, you know, a high caliber shot into your chest and, go and fill you from the inside out. But how do we think about it? I think in the church today we've become so fixated on Jesus in me that we've missed the fundamental New Testament call that we are supposed to be in Jesus. And I think the way you look at this changes everything. Because if it's Jesus in me, it can be in part of me. It should affect all of me. But it can be cordoned off. It can be blocked away. It can be tucked over here where people don't see. But if I'm surrounded in it, it's sticking to all of me. Every single bit of who I am is now affected and touched and, shall we say, stained by Jesus. There was another way they would baptize in the ancient world. People wanted colorful cloth, right? And so what they would do is they would, they would crush these plants or they would find certain kinds of sea animals or, or whatever it might be and they would make these dyes out of these plants and they would take what they shorn from the sheep or, or wherever else they're getting their fabric, right? And they would take this, like, natural-looking thing and they would, well, in their words, baptize it in. So that it would go in and it would come out not only looking completely different, but stained. You ever take a piece of clothes and, like, get some dye on it or plunge it in? It doesn't come off too easily, does it? Is there a certain understanding about Jesus in the same way? Now let's go back to John 3 for a minute. He says, I tell you the truth. No one can enter or be a part of the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Born of water and the spirit. He goes on to later define how this is. And this is fundamental, this idea of being born from above or being born again, depending on your translation, in Jesus and what it means to have a relationship with Christ. What it means is this. What does God want? What does God want of you? Simple. All of you. He doesn't want a part of you. He doesn't just want your intellect. He doesn't just want some emotions. He doesn't just want a segment of time. He wants all of you. Every last ounce, because that's what a relationship is. Isn't it? I mean, who would get married, right? Who would go into a marriage and get married with someone that says, you know, I love you, but no, you can't have any part of this side of my life. I love you, but, but, but no, my money is mine. You know, you don't, you don't get to have that. I love you, but, you know, I only give you a couple hours, and the rest of the time is for me. I, I love you, but no, I'm not going to change. No, you, I, this is me. Cope. I mean, who wants or, or should go into a relationship like that? If you enter into a marriage with someone, right, you give all of you which is why it's so important to make so incredibly sure you're entering that with the right person. Are you with me? How much more with God? See, God does not want simply your belief. God doesn't want you to simply know the right things about him. God loves you. 
and he's pursuing you, and he's passionate about you, and he wants to be in a relationship with you that goes far beyond just knowing I, that you exist out there somewhere, someday. And I think this is the idea of what the New Testament writers tried to capture with this translated word of baptize into immerse. That as God gives himself completely into you, he wants you to give yourself completely into him. It's amazing, in the Bible, you'll see it actually phrased oftentimes both ways within a single verse. Turn with me, if you would, to John 15. This is this whole famous passage, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? And if you don't know it, I encourage you to read it here this morning while we're, while we're talking through. And if you look at 15, verse 4, look at what Jesus says. Remain in me as I also remain in you. Isn't that funny? Remain in me. Be plunged into me as I remain in you, as I come into you. It's never an either or. It is a both and. But we have to guard against the danger of making it simply the both side or the and. It's no, both and. Remain in me. Stay in me. Stay immersed in me. And I in you. Does that make sense? And from here on out, the New Testament writers just go haywire. They just start penning and penning all kinds of implications of what this means and what this immersion into Christ looks like. There's sometimes where you see it's intimately connected with this idea of salvation, that by being immersed into Christ, you're immersed into what Christ experienced. And therefore, by being immersed into what he experienced, it counts for you, it rubs off on you. You're plunged into the same thing. Because Christ is saved, you are saved. Because Christ is righteous, you are righteous. Because Christ is holy, you are holy. You see it connected with faith. This idea about what it means to be plunged or immersed into Christ is identified by this thing called faith. Now, faith is another one of these theological words that gets butched today. Faith, I think, uh, for, for many people, gets reduced to this idea of, of believing, right? I understand the right things. Faith is so much more than that. Faith, I think, better than translated belief is more, at, more aptly translated trust. What is the difference between belief and trust? Think about it. There's lots of things I believe, but do I actually operate my life in such a way that I trust those beliefs as reality? Are you with me? It's a famous story. It's classic. It's cliche in many churches. It's worth retelling. You hear this whole thing about like the tightrope walker who has to cross, you know, a segment of the Grand, not the Grand Canyon, the uh, Niagara Falls kind of thing, and uh, he's got it stretched out, and, and the crowd is coming like, oh my gosh, is he going to do it? And they, and he starts shouting out to him, "Do you believe that I can do it?" Like, yeah. And he hops on and he walks over, and the crowd goes nuts. Do you believe I can come back again? Yeah. He walks back over and the crowd goes nuts. Do you believe that I can do it? Yeah! Hop on my back and let me show you. Do you believe in God or do you trust him? Because God wants so much more than just your belief. Yes, Lord, we know you are the son of God. Yes, Lord, we know that you came to die for the sins of the world. These are good things. And these beliefs are essential to feeding a faith. But if they remain at just a cognitive level alone, you are missing the fullness of what it means to be in faith and to be immersed into Christ. What does it mean to look at our destinies? And to know that there is a 100% chance, barring Christ's return, that we will die. And that all of us someday will face 
what's on the other side. And for many people who, who struggle with the doubts of this or, or, or the fear of this or even panic over this, what does it mean to say, I don't know, I haven't been there, but Jesus, I'm willing to trust my soul in your hands. What does it mean for those who are looking for, for atonement in this world? You know, you struggle just with, with a guilt that will not rub away, that will not fade. It feels eternal. And to say, I know that you died on a cross for me, but I trust it here also today. What does it mean for those who wonder, is God real? What does he think of me? Will I have to face him someday? To say, I am willing to trust my position before God in Jesus' hands. And not just understand how the theological system works out, but go, no, I am actively giving myself to you, Lord Jesus, and trusting that when I stand before God someday, he is going to look at me and say, well done, forgiven. Go in peace, good and faithful servant, because of my son, Jesus Christ. What does it mean to live that way? What does it mean when we face these things where, where, where God is calling us to do something and it doesn't feel right? It doesn't feel right because it doesn't feel like life should work out. It doesn't feel practical. It lacks common sense. And to say, I'm willing to trust your way despite the fact I'm really afraid it's going to hurt me. Despite the fact I'm really afraid there's going to be a sacrifice attached. Because I'm trusting that who you are is who you say you are. And I'm putting myself in my hands. These are just tastes and bits of what it means to be immersed. John chapter 3. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, right? No one can be born, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he has been born from above or born again. And then he goes on to describe, he says, you know, just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness one time back in the, the Old Testament stories and a bunch of people looked at it and got healed, so Jesus is going to be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And he says, God so loves the world that he gave his only son that whoever trusts in him, believes in him. Dare I even say, by metaphorical extension, immersed in him, will not perish, but have eternal life. That's what it means to have a relationship with Christ. It means to be in him, and for him to be in you, and for that to start to define you, and to mold you, and connect you, and become a part of you as you live in him. So my encouragement to you today is do not settle for simply Jesus in you. Plunge yourself in him. Be baptized in the fullest sense of what that means. Because anything less, I mean, anything less misses what what Jesus and his apostles are calling us to to begin with. Make sense? Here's what I'd like to do today. We're going to break here in just a few minutes, and then we're, we're gathering back together today at 1030. And what we're going to do is we're going to see four people get baptized in the American sense of the word. But through that, we're going to see four people being brought forward to be immersed into the thing of God marked by a day. Does that make sense? You know, Luther used to have this thing, though, where he said, live your baptism daily. Renew your baptism daily. Get baptized every day. What do you mean by that? Does it mean we're supposed to come, like, come through some water right every day? 
No, I think he meant something far different than that. At 10.30, is it a baptism for four people? Or is it a baptism for everyone? If you choose to immerse yourself in Christ. And if not, well, then it's baptism for the rest. But see, God's invitation is not just for four today. God's invitation is for you. Immerse yourself in Christ. Now you might be saying, I've never done it before. That's awesome. We'll show you how to do it today. You might be saying, I've been baptized before. Great, do it again today. You might be saying, but, but wait, a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's like, I did it once and it didn't like stick. All the more reason to plunge into the die again. Am, am I right? So what I'd like to do right now is invite all of you into a moment where not only you invite Jesus into your heart, but where you offer yourself to be immersed into him. And I just encourage you, if you'd like, please close your eyes and pray with me. And if this is your first time today, just, just come to God in sincerity. Come to God with a sense of vulnerability. Just open yourself to him and know that God is good and gracious and loves you. And will come to you and invite you into him. So Lord, we come wanting to be baptized. We come wanting to embrace it. We want to bask in it. Lord, many of us have come to see things about you that you are the source of goodness, the source of love, of forgiveness, of truth. You're the source of hope and strength and answers. Lord, I pray with those here today who are wanting that. And we simply say, here we are. Lord Jesus, forgive us of all of our sins. Forgive us of the ways that we've rebelled against you. Forgive us, God, of the ways that we've rejected you and fought you. Forgive us, God, for ignoring you. And forgive us, God, maybe most of all, for becoming content with you. Viewing you as an Indian in the cupboard to be just tucked safely away. Lord, we've come to see you're bigger than that. You're great and you're mighty. And you have the capacity to swallow us and immerse us into you. And in so doing, we get to discover who we truly are and who you've made us to be. So here we are, O oh Lord. We pray, take us, claim us, call us as your own. Lord, we invite you into our hearts. We invite you into our lives. We invite you into our minds. Come, God, we pray, take residence in us. But Lord, just as we pray that, may we remain in you. May that define us every step of the way. And I pray, O oh God, all this in your Son's name. Amen. If any of you would uh, like to talk follow-up about today, I love keeping the conversation going. Please come talk to me, find me, and we'll, we'll chat.